Hi everybody, my guest today is bass player Malcolm Moore. Malcolm has played with a host of artists over the years, including Westlife, James Blunt, Robbie Williams and more. He's also, for the last five years or so, been the bass player in the West End production of Mamma Mia in London. Here's what he had to say. And the next thing I need you to do is just strike a pose so I can take a thumbnail, just take a little shot for the thumbnail of this, okay? Right. You ready? So I'm going to point at you, and then you'll yeah. pull a nice face. Ready? Three. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean, pull a face? Well, pull it. Just do a nice smile. It's just like a posing oh, picture. Okay. It's going to be like that. All right. Okay. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one. That's it. That's what right. we need to do. Um, okay. So trying to think. Okay. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. Come on, then. <clears throat> Hi, Mal. Hello, Chris. It's nice to see you. It's lovely to see you too. How, how's things? Uh, it's good. Thanks. Yeah. All, all right. Weird, but good. Yes. Right. Listen, I need to probably come. Uh, we need to explain before we move on that uh, we are actually quite, I would say, quite uh, good friends. I'd probably say very good friends, in fact, because I I'll, have. I'll go with that. Yeah. I have an unhealthy amount of pictures in my camera roll of you and me at various eating establishments in London <laughs> for all the meals that we've had. Uh, we've had many uh, nice beers together. We've also played a lot of ABBA tunes together several hundred times, I would imagine, at this point in time. Yeah. Um, something which we'll actually move on to later. But I, you're also actually the first bass player to come on and do one of these. Am I? Okay. Yeah, and I know obviously I feel- you're, not, you're not a lefty or whatever, but you are the first bass player. Well, thanks. I, you know, I feel honoured. Well, that's all right. You know, I thought uh, we've had obviously quite a few guitarists, quite a few lefty guitarists. We've had a couple of drummers. We've had some singers on here. Um, we've had some producers. And then I thought, you know, for the first bass player, it's got to be my favourite person, my favourite bass player, someone wow. who I love very much. Uh, and But Jazz Locker wasn't available. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's perfectly all right. I'm kidding. I'm, you kidding, me, I'm kidding. You had me going there for a while. <laughs> right. Listen, let's go. I'm, I'm actually quite interested because I'm going to find out some stuff about you. I'm sure that I don't even know, even though we've mm. known each other for quite some time. So let's go back to the early days. I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to say that none of your family are musical or am I wrong? No one plays an instrument. No. That's what I thought. So where yeah. did it come from and when did you pick it up and what made you want to play? Uh, my dad ha- had a lot of records. He had a, uh, that's why I said no one plays an instrument because he, he, he was really into music, very specifically kind of West Coast 70s stuff, the Eagles, uh, um, uh, Elton John, Neil Diamond, you know, that, that sort of era of stuff. He's really into all that. But he also had older stuff, Beatles records and stuff from, from his younger days. Okay. Um, and so we, that was on in the car all the time. And I really liked it. I didn't really know why. And I certainly didn't know how to play any of it at that point, but I, but I just was really into it. I used to really enjoy listening to it. And um, then my sister, who's five years older than me, uh, started to learn to play the guitar. She only learned for a few weeks. So she, I don't count that as her playing an instrument, but she brought a guitar home into the house. And I thought, I don't know, that looks like fun. So when she stopped playing a little while later, I thought, I'm going to have a go at that because there was just a guitar in the house. So I, I just started trying to play stuff the stuff I heard on my dad's records very badly, obviously. Um, 
and I just really liked it. And you, you, I'm sure you had the same experience, and, and lots of people do, where, where you just go, this is it, this is me. Yeah. I really like doing this. Yeah, I thought I liked other stuff, but I didn't, it turns out. I like this. There you go. It doesn't yeah. need to be a reason behind it sometimes. And I think a lot of people, especially the same with me when I started, there wasn't a reason. It was just, that's what I really wanted to do. I, I yeah. really quite fancy doing it, you know. So did you have, uh, so initially self-taught, did you have lessons and, and what was the deal? Yeah. Uh, so I, so I initially I self-taught. Then my primary school had a once a week kind of guitar club thing uh, after school. And, and so I went to that a few times, but I really didn't enjoy it. I don't know why. I didn't like just like the process of it. So I stopped that. I carried on just sort of learning at home. And then in my final year of primary school, we got a, a dedicated music teacher at my primary school, which was incredible. A guy called Malcolm Timms. Uh, incredible fella. Came in, started a school orchestra immediately, even though, even though hardly anyone played any instruments yet. You know, uh, I say orchestra, you know, it was like recorders and acoustic guitars and all that. Sure. But yeah, we felt like it was an orchestra. And he was incredible. And he bought a double bass for that orchestra. And in one music lesson, he just said, right, who wants to have a go at this? And because I could play a bit of guitar and because no one else could be bothered, all, all my mates were, Malcolm will do it. <laughs> and, and so I went and had a go on this double bass. And, and the same thing as with the guitar, just immediately thought, well, I don't know what I've been doing before, but this is me now. I love it. It's great. How funny. And, and so I, I, I became the kind of, double bass player of our school orchestra again I could hardly play it at all but was just sort of thrown in there and and loved it and and, and really enjoyed it and, and then from there that that same music teacher uh, sent me to a, a, a music school in in Chelmsford where I live now um called Chelmer Valley Music School and again really lucky the guy who taught double bass there was the principal double bass player of the Royal Opera House so no I went way. in yeah, I went in having been playing the double bass for about six months, had more or less no idea of what I was doing and had this incredible teacher. And as like I say, just landed on my feet, really. Wow. Um, yeah. Quite interesting, though, that it was actually, the, it was the double bass. It wasn't, a, you know, a bass guitar, it wasn't electric bass or whatever. It was... No, it, it was double bass. For, uh, like I said, guitar a bit first, but yeah, I could only play a few chords. And then, and then, and then the double bass. Um, and then... Uh, not long after that, I remember my dad saying, if you can, if you like the guitar and you like double bass, you should play the electric bass. So he went and bought me a, bless him, he bought me a, a, a K bass. Yeah. You remember those? Are they too old for you? K basses. It, it looked a bit like a precision. K was the kind of bass you could buy out of the catalogue sure, when, okay. when you were a kid. It was one yeah, of those yeah. ones, you know. And he bought me one of those, but it, it looked like a Fender and it, to me, it sounded like a Fender. And, and, and again, I just loved it. So. Yeah. And didn't take up all the room in the house of having a massive double bass as well. <laughs> well, at that point, I didn't have my... Did I have my own double bass by then? Probably around the same time I, I got a double bass as well. But before that, I was just using the school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So after you've been playing a little while, uh, what, like who were your... I mean, you were really starting to get into it. Who were your influences? Again, at that age, and, I, and I'm talking about like 11 years old now. So I, I was around 10 when, when it the story I just told happened. So yeah. now I'm about 11. I'm starting to really get into it. And it all just came from my dad's records. So the rec the only records I had really were my dad's old ones. So Paul McCartney, the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, he had, my dad had the first four Beatles albums. Nothing beyond that. Got a bit weird for him after that. Yeah. yeah. But, but, the, but, the, but the first four, yeah, the poppy ones he was really into. And, uh, and, I, and I loved them as well. So McCartney. 
again, this is probably all by osmosis rather than me sitting there and going, I want to play like him. I, sure. I, didn't, I, I didn't really think like that at that age, but that I was just listening to that stuff over and over. So then my dad had a few Stones, a couple of Stones records. Uh, he had the single of My Generation by The Who, but it's got a bass solo in it, obviously. Obviously. And, uh, and I was just fascinated by that. What's that? Yeah. How does he make it sound like that? Um, and I just, through all of those records, I remember he had a Monkeys album, which I thought was brilliant at the time. Great record. Um, so yeah, just by listening to all of those and, and just, just thinking to myself, I don't really know how they're doing that, but I want to make that noise. Yes. Not just the bass, but the whole thing. I, I, I want to get, I want to get some mates who can do it as well. And I want to make that racket. Yes. Which leads then, me on to when did that happen then? When did I start making that racket? Yeah. When did you, like, what was your first uh, experience of at least jamming with friends or your first band or anything like that? I tried to start a band when I was about 12, maybe, maybe yeah, about 12, just with my mates, like who lived in the same street as me, more or less, who didn't really play. Okay. And I would just, and I, but so by that time, none of us had any drums, but by that time I had a little a sort of Farfisa type organ and, a, and, a, and an acoustic guitar and, a, and an electric bass. So I would just give them the instruments and go, do this, <laughs> just so that we could make that noise. Do you sure. know what I mean? Um, and I found that really exciting. I'm sure it was God awful. Uh, but at the time I found it really, really exciting. Thankfully, no recordings exist, at least, that I'm aware, <laughs> at least that I'm aware of. But we even did a gig at a local youth club. We didn't play for long. We only knew a couple of songs and we didn't really know them. But, but yeah, so about 12, 12 years old, I would say, I first took the steps to go, right, I'm going to do this, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but like I say, very tentative and very amateur steps with people that didn't really play. Yeah, of course, but that's how everyone <laughs> learns, isn't it? And, and that's, yeah. you know, you're not certainly not the only person because it was a very similar deal with me when I was at school and stuff like that, you know, first band in school and all of that business. When, so when was it that you, that you um, really sort of started taking it seriously when you left, like, I'm trying to work towards the, the sort of era of when you were leaving school into where you were going to go with your life and how you'd try and make it pan out with playing right. for a living. So, so I'm going to go a little bit before that because that's where it okay. started, really. So, sure. so when I was about 14, um, I'd started playing with a drummer friend of mine, and I was playing keyboards and singing, and he was playing drums, and we used to do duo gigs in in pubs, specifically a pub not far from where we lived, who did bands at the weekends, and we knew the landlord, and we ended up playing in there once a month or something. Okay, and. From that came up other gigs like holiday camp gigs and things sure. like that. And at one, at one point, we even had a, an agent, you know, booking us gigs at hol holiday camps. And things. And right. We were underage to be in the bars and everything. You know? Sure. Um, but we started to earn a little bit of money, uh, you know, not a lot, but it was better than a paper round. Yeah. And it was, a, I, I think it happens to a lot of people where, where you, your career ends up being the thing you start earning money at rather than you having this kind of mad goal and, and thinking I'm going to be a session musician or rock star or whatever it might be, yeah. whatever the thing is, you just find yourself earning a little bit of money at it. So you keep doing it and you earn a little bit more. And then you, and the next thing you know, that's your job. Cause that's, sure. cause that's, cause that's what you do. So that's how it happened really. It wasn't a, I didn't really think it was possible to make a living from being a musician. I didn't have anyone in my family that had done it. I had no reference point for it. I knew sure. that people did, but I didn't know how. But I just gradually started, to, it started to become a, a job, like a Saturday job to begin with, and then a bit more than that, and, and so it went on. Yeah. Um, so moving from the, the 
how how did you sort of bridge the gap to like the first pro gigs that you had from doing those those smaller gigs and the holiday camp things that all happened at university yeah uh, so let, so where did you go to uni i went to city university in london okay which was a combined course with the Guildhall School of Music. So you had your instrumental lessons at Guildhall. Okay. So I had, my, I had double bass lessons at Guildhall. So I, I had a sort of double life right from the beginning, really, as a classical musician, double bass player, and a bit more rock and roll, you know, playing sure. pubs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, and that's always continued, really. Le- less so these days. I don't play much classical double bass these days, but up until fairly recently I did. Um, so I went to university and studied double bass. Yes at Guildhall but it was also like a sound engineering course it was quite uh quite broad yeah it, it was it was a sort of academic music degree but there was performance and sound engineering and all that as well yeah um and so there were some really really good players on that on that course I bet what one of whom you know Tim Maple guitar player he was on he was a oh, year above yeah. me yeah uh a piano player and composer he's a composer now called Dave Merrick who you probably don't know, but just one of the most astonishing musicians to this day I've ever heard, you know, absolutely incredible. And there were a few, a few people on that course that were that, were that good. And it, and it was initially, it was a bit of a kick in the teeth. It was like, wow, no, these guys are proper. These guys yeah. can, can really play. Yeah. I thought I was quite good, you know, not compared to these guys. And so there, there was an element of sort of, I'd, I'd quite like to be as good as them. So there's a little bit of motivation there. Um, but also what happened was those guys started to get like proper gigs towards the end of our time at university. That, and, we, and we all ended up in the same band, I think called the Steve Martland Band. Okay. Martland, M-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, if you want to look it up. Okay. And he was a classical composer, but it was quite rock and roll in a way. It was like a big band lineup, lots of horns and a rhythm section and a piano and a marimba as well. Oh, and a violin. And he wrote this kind of modernist, minimalist classical music that was quite sort of funky, but quite weird and aggressive as well. But he got a deal with Factory Records, amazingly, for a classical composer, and so started to become a bit of a thing in the early 90s. And we were in his band. And and, and from that, we, we started to get gigs with the BBC Symphony Orchestra because he wrote some orchestral music as well, but his orchestral wow. music had, ele- had electric bass in it. Sure. So they, they would do some of his music in the proms or something, and the obvious thing to do was to get us in to play the electric parts because we'd been playing his music all, all that time. Sure. So, so to answer your question, sorry, I'm waffling, but the, no, the, no, no, the, the bridge between doing it as a kind of Saturday job and it becoming a professional thing was really that band, that Steve Martin band. Amazing. Because that, that went from, that made that progression for us, really, because it was always a professional gig. We always got paid. Sure. But it wasn't, it wasn't doing very much. And it made that progression because it started to do more and more things and it led to other things. And before we knew it, we were kind of doing it full, full time. Amazing. So that yeah. was really the, the first, um, the, your, probably your first big gig, I would say then, the, the thing that sort of started the ball rolling uh, at some speed. And where, yeah. did it, where did it lead on to from there? So we did, the, um, we did these orchestral gigs, uh, BBC Symphony, London Sinfonietta, you know, serious orchestras that sure. we, we've, we probably had, I speak for myself only, I probably had no right playing with these people. As a double bass player, I wouldn't ever have got into any of those orchestras. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, did you, I think a lot of musicians have it where you sometimes, it's quite easy to feel that you're out of your depth for certain gigs that you might do. Did you ever feel that you were out of your depth or, and you think, well, how did I get here? How am I doing this? And how did you I, deal with it? 
I definitely would have felt out of my depth if if I was playing double bass and we were doing Mozart or something. Sure. You know, not not that I couldn't have got around it, but I would. I'm certainly not in the league of the guys that do that all the time. You, you right. know, you know, it, it, they're like Olympic musicians when it comes to that, that yeah. kind of things. I'm just not in that in that league at all. But because we were playing music that I knew more about than they did, this music yes. to them was quite new and and probably quite bizarre. But we yeah. knew it inside out. So it was probably the opposite, and you actually felt quite at home playing it. Although in a way, was, yeah, in a the environment, different environment. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, the environment was a bit intimidating. Yeah, and we were lucky that the first couple of conductors we worked under were very friendly towards us, and, and you know, included us in, in in the thing. Didn't treat us like we were a bit part players. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it was intimidating in one sense, but in another, we we kind of knew that we 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 had a bigger handle on this music than they did really yeah brilliant i remember in the in the first rehearsal of a, of a piece called baba yar huge orchestral piece had about eight horns in it eight french horns they all walked out of the rehearsal because they, they essentially said this music's unplayable and uh if i remember correctly I, I, steve's not with us anymore but he was in the rehearsal with it. sorry if i'm misremembering this steve but but they said this is unplayable, words to that effect. And Steve said, well, the Devol Harding Orchestra in Amsterdam, they could play it. And they all walked out. The horns walked out. No <laughs> yeah. And so things like that kind of made you feel comfortable. Of course. You know, because, you know, we were playing it. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to play the horn part, thankfully. But we were no. doing our bit and it was okay. But at the same time, surely all this time it's making you a, a, a more rounded musician. Uh, well, I hope so. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we we certainly um we certainly had had a we're doing lots of different stuff varied stuff and 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 hopefully learning from it all yeah yeah so I I started to digress there but yeah we we were on the path of where it went for you after that so where did where did you sort of where did where did it lead to after all of those gigs uh, it lasted till about two thousand maybe there was all all the orchestral stuff and then. Uh, Tim, who I mentioned earlier, who was playing guitar in Steve's band, he got a show. He got Rent. Okay. Yeah, he was depping on it, and then the guy whose chair it was left, and and they got Tim in to, to take the guitar and keyboards chair right. on Rent, uh, which for anyone watching is a West End show from the late 90s, uh, sort of New York hipster show. Yeah. Good, good one. Um, and yeah, so Tim got that chair, and... He needed, he didn't want to do too much of it. He was quite busy already. And he, he wanted to kind of be that West End player that depths it out quite a lot. Yeah. But, but still had it there, which, you know, yeah. is, the best, is the best way to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, stop me going mad. So he got this gig and he essentially said to the fixer at the time, um, I, I, I'm going to want to depth this out quite a lot. And the fixer said, oh, fine, you know, don't worry, we've, we've got a series of depths. But he struggled a little bit to get a depth whenever he needed one because, you know, obviously not everyone's available all the time. Sure. And he called me and said, look, it's keyboards and guitar, but it's really not that hard. It's not, you know, I'm no, I'm no guitar player. You've never heard me play guitar, but I'm not, a, I'm no virtuoso. I can play a bit, but I'm no virtuoso. But this thing was like mostly rhythm guitar and a bit of Hammond organ and a little bit of sort of piano here and there. He said, look, you'll be all over this. He said, how do you fancy coming in and depping for me on this show? Now, at that point, I'd never done a West End show, um, but he needed somebody who's going to be available. And frankly, I was. Right. So, uh, so I went in and did that one. Really enjoyed it. Begged Phil Lachlan, who was the bass player on Rent. No way. Yeah. Begged him to let me do the bass chair. To when he took a night off, let me do the bass chair. And obviously, he had his own depths, and he 
you know, he didn't want to just sort of let this person that we'd only just met, really. Yeah, yeah. Although we got on great. Um, and eventually, I think the show was going to close. Not long after I started doing it, maybe six months after I started doing it, it was winding down anyway. And again, I begged him and bless him. Eventually he went, okay, how, how about you do Saturday, you know? So then I'd done a show on bass. And right. that, that meant that I could do that thing that you do and call a couple of people who I didn't really know. Sure. Say, look I've, look, I've done a show. It went okay. If you need anybody, I'm here. One of those people was Steve Price, who does Lion King, and I went in and did that. Okay. And from there, you know, once you've done a few, as you know, once you've done a few, you can start, people will start calling you to go in and debt. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I never knew that it was Phil that was that gave you your first uh, debt. Yeah, yeah the, the wonderful Phil Lachlan. And, I, you know, I'm still grateful for that opportunity that he gave Yeah, he's such a lovely guy. And in yeah. turn, he's obviously one of your debts now on Mamma Mia, which is uh, even yeah. better. Yeah, he's great. So uh, aside from starting to carve your way, uh, you know, depping on a few shows in town and stuff like that, you also were doing stuff with artists. Um, yeah. So who was the first, uh, on that side of the fence, who, were the, who was the first artist that you worked with and what did you do? The first uh, kind of pop artist that I, that I worked with was a boy band called A1. Do you remember them? Vaguely, yeah. 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 They, they didn't, well, they weren't around all that long. Um, in fact, I think the tour I did was for their first album. Now, that might be incorrect. Okay. And, uh, I'm not even sure there was another album after that. Maybe there was. But they had a number one single with a cover of Take On Me by Aha. Okay. That, that was during the tour. They had that number one during the tour that, that I did with them. Um, and it was great fun. It was really good. So how did you get into that, in, into the, doing that stuff? Who was it? Again, again, that was Tim again. Tim right, from the, okay. Martin, from the yeah. Steve Martin band. He, right. from Rent, he... Uh, got a gig with Boyzone. It's slightly convoluted. Right. The he one of the depths on rent was doing the Boyzone gig on keyboards and guitar and then left that gig to go to LA, I think, and go and be a spear songwriter or something. Okay. And got Tim got Tim to do the Boyzone gig. So he went in nice. and did that. And the MD of that gig was the same guy that did A1 and got Richard Taylor. Right. Okay. Keyboard player and, and musical director. And when he did A1 it was like, okay, who should we get to play bass? And again, I'm lucky. Tim said, well, I know somebody. Nice. I did a couple of gig, like one-off little gigs with Richard. I think he was just kind of test, testing it out, you know, like by way of an audition. Sure. And then went and did A1. And then A1 led to Westlife, more or less the same band. Did, yep. did a Westlife, their, their first tour, which was a really long one, like six, six months or something. Um, it must have been quite a big one because it was their first one as well. Yeah, well, it, ridiculously... It was their first tour, but they'd already had eight, eight number one singles. Really? They went, uh, yeah. They'd, up to that point, they'd never done a sort of proper tour. They'd done gigs like, you know, the Capitol, yeah, yeah, those, yeah. those kinds of things. But it was their first proper tour. But yeah, it was all arenas. You know, like, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 20 nights at the point in Dublin. Really? Yeah, ludicrous. Like 10 nights at Wembley Arena. Jeez. Absolutely sold like hotcakes. And that was a real eye-opener for me. You know, yeah. as that how a how a sort of proper pop gig works. And yeah, of course. So I did that one Westlife tour. Then it was Fame Academy. There was a BBC TV program called Fame Academy. That's why I remember it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the winner, the there might have only been one year, but the winner of the year I did it was a guy called David Snedden, a, a Scottish guy. Yeah. And there was an Irish girl called Sinead Quinn who came second. Okay. And Lamar, who's still around, he he was in that series as well. Right. 
uh, he's still making records. Um, and they they did a, a tour, an arena tour after the show ended. And same production company as as the as the uh, Westlife tour, same MD as Westlife tour. Yeah. Uh, and and so you know I ended up on that as well. Nice. Um, and then out of that, Sinead did her own tour, which I did as well. Uh, and and that one was with a drummer called Carl Brazil, who uh, since then uh, I've done lots of things with 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 since then. This was like yes. two thousand and three. Now I'm talking about maybe. Sure. And then not long after that, I did Lulu's band for a while with Carl. Uh, oh, I didn't know that really. Yeah, Lulu did two tours with Lulu. Nice. How um, how was she to work with? Amazing. I mean, what a singer. Yeah, absolutely. A really great singer. I, I, the little experience that I've had with artists of that kind of vintage. Yeah. You know, they really can do it. They can really yeah. properly sing. Because um, yeah. they had to, you know. Uh, yeah, of course. And but it never leaves them, does it? Because I was watching a thing the other day and Tom Jones was on there. And he just got up and did it. But it's just always so effortless. And yeah. they're never, they're never miming, and they're always singing live. And it's, yeah, like you say, they were just brought up in that era where they, it's just in their veins to do it, and they would wouldn't do it any other way, would they? No, exactly. Um, and so, they, yeah, that was a real experience, um, being being around her, and also also the kind of the first time I'd realised possibly the eccentricities that those that artists can have as well. Sure. She was she was an unusual kind of character. Right. She, um, she travelled with a healer. She had a healer that travelled with her, um, uh, which is just wasn't something I'm, I'm no criticism of that whatsoever. It was just something okay. I wasn't used to. You know, right. it was a world that I'd never inhabited before. You mean you've never travelled? You've never talked with a, <laughs> someone with a healer before? I no, mean, I hadn't. No, no. But hey, it seems, it, it mean, seems like, to work. Like a, a faith healer? Yeah, healer. I, I guess. Okay. All right. I, I guess so, yeah. Um, hey, she's Lulu. I, she can do what she wants. Yeah, yeah, I don't really know. I was I was never in the room when the healing occurred, but oh. but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it was a kind of faith healing. She certainly had a lot of faith in 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 the fact that this lady would be able to help her out on days when she wasn't feeling on top form. Right. Um, yeah. So wow. yeah, that was an eye that was an eye opener. Wow. But mainly, mainly, yeah, what a singer is is, the, yes, is mainly what. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what a healer. <laughs> I don't know. I, like I say, I, I never. Uh, I was never healed. <laughs> um so what uh after lulu was was that when um things how like i'm trying to bridge the gap to james blunt a sec yes well we're only one step away oh uh, lovely i'm loving it while we were doing lulu's band um I, I may as well tell you the whole story carl the drummer carl he got a gig uh miming on a german tv show with elton john I can't nice. remember what, what okay. John was promoting at the time, but he was, he went on this kind of, you know, equivalent of Good Morning Britain or whatever yeah, and did yeah. the live spot and just had a, a miming band with him, didn't take his own band. And, and I honestly don't know how this happened, but Carl ended up doing that, that gig. He went and did it, but Elton's manager was James Blunt's manager, same guy, guy called Todd Interland. Okay. At, at that time, you know, he, he was managed by his own management company called Rocket Management. Right. Um, and, and Todd was an employee at that point of rocket management, he ended up running it. But at that point he was an employee of them and was there with Elton. And so met Carl and they just started talking and Todd said to him, look, I've got this guy coming through, a guy called James Blunt. At this point, no one had heard of him. He hadn't done anything yet. He's going to need a band, you know, do you fancy it? So Carl said, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, 
brought, brought me in, uh, you know, just a stroke of luck again. And we, um, a, a couple of months later, we met James in a Starbucks uh, in Fulham. And he just seemed like a good guy. And he told us what he, what he wanted out of his band. And we said, great, you know, we'll do it. But we didn't know what it was going to be at that point. I think. No, and I, I was just going to say, you you know, having listened to everything you've just said about all the previous people you'd worked with, uh, you know, A1, Westlife, uh, various uh, people from, you know, the TV show world as well. Mm. No one's, no one's future is ever guaranteed. No one's career is ever guaranteed. Uh, therefore, if you're a member of their band, you never know how long it's going to go on for. Difference yeah. this time though, I suppose, that your tenure with James Blunt would be something that would last quite a considerable amount of time. And the fact that you were there almost from the beginning with him. Yeah. I, that, I feel extremely fortunate to have had that experience because it was a bit like being in a band, you know, having your own band, getting signed yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and making records and all that, but without any of the pressure of it being your thing. Yeah. Because, because it was all him, you know, his, they were his songs. It was his deal. None of us were signed to anything. We were just employees, essentially. Sure. But it was a proper band in the sense that it was always the same people. And whenever he did anything, it was always us. We didn't play on the first record because when we met him, he'd already made the first album. Yeah. Um, so that was that was a separate thing. But from the point that we became his band, we were his, we were we were his band, and, and so it was a bit like being in a proper in your own thing. I know that you went to. Uh you went to LA to record would it have been the second album yeah what came first though before that did you start doing live gigs with him yeah so we toured the first album yeah. a lot for like 18 months or something you know a really really long time on and off do you mind mentioning um, at this point as well who else was in the band not at all so Carl who I've already mentioned Carl Brazil sure. on the drums um a piano player called Paul Beard who uh now is with Art Garfunkel he's Art Garfunkel's pianist now wow. um but i've done a lot of things he'd already been in the in um black grape you know the offshoot of the happy mondays he'd yeah, been yeah. doing that so he, he was already quite experienced in that world uh so him on piano me carl uh and then a the guitar player uh oh it was paul i can't remember his surname the original guitar player didn't hang around for too long because he had his own deal okay um oh, i wish i could remember his surname uh but then it became ben castle a guy called ben castle uh, yeah who now lives in Australia. I haven't seen him for a long time. But, um, yeah, not another guitar player called Ben Castle. Who? No, I no, there's, a, not, there's not about four one. Ben Castles. There is, yeah, uh, there's loads of them, yeah. Saxophone players and guitarists. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, yeah. This, this, is, this is a Ben Castle who, um, he had his own band called Amber Shades at that, at that time. Not someone you'd see in the Western theatres or anything like that. Sure, um, sure. Uh, different kind of sort of player, really. Yeah. Different kind of musician, but a really good one, really good one. Um, and he, he really brought something to the band it was nice to see you know, kind of bluesy slightly countryish edge nice. to it, it yeah, great, yeah yeah so your first gigs with james blunt what um what sort of venues are we talking what sort of capacities are we talking originally when you first went out so the very first one we did was upstairs at the garage in islington so right. about, about 100 people 150 sure. maybe yeah that, that was the very first one it was like a showcase thing and then from there it was um theaters in this country yeah uh, and in America, clubs, you know, you know, quite small, 300 people, clubs sure. initially. And in Europe, the same thing. But once Your Beautiful became a hit, which was July 2005, so we'd been doing doing the thing a year or so by then. Once that became a, a hit, 
everything just exploded and the venues became enormous and we were doing arenas in France and yeah. you know, 12,000 12, people in Switzerland. It, that, that leap happened really quickly just with one hit record. Yeah, I remember trying to think who I was. Oh, it was Simon. When, I, when Simon Mary was on here, oh, we yeah. were talking about, uh, you know, because he was with Rick Astley before the sort of second coming of Rick Astley. And he said exactly the same thing that they were doing like Butlins and places like that. And almost overnight, they went from doing Butlins and the small, the small places to the sheds and, you know, and yeah. the arenas and all like that, just like that. And it happened incredibly quickly in a similar vein. To, also, to just, sorry, just to illustrate that, to, uh, consecutive years of Glastonbury, the first time we did Glastonbury was not long after his first album. Might have even been just before his first album came out. Um, and we played in a, a little tent. Uh, and when we first went on stage, I think there were three people in the, in the tent, one of yeah. whom was asleep on the ground. Right. <laughs> we were Amazing. on at like mid, midday or something. Right. And then the following year, Pyramid Stage, every, everyone there, you know. Jesus. Just, yeah, that's how quickly it, it happened. That's the space of one year. I think it was one year. Uh, forgive me if my memory's a bit hazy. That might be, it might have been two years, but the, the, the principle Even still so. stands. Yeah. 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 Incredible. From there, uh, when I want to know about when you went to, you've told me this story on a personal level, but I want to know about when you went to the States to record the, the, the album and stuff like that. So we, so we did the, this tour for the first album, which was really long. And during that tour, we started to write new songs and we started to play them live. Some, some new songs. Um, and so when he went, when he came to making his next album, it, it just seemed logical that rather than use American studio musicians, which is what he did on the first one, that, that we would record it. Um, and so they just made a plan for that. And we went to LA for a month uh, and recorded those, those songs and some newer ones that, that he'd written. And we rehearsed them for a week out there, then tracked the kind of main tracking for a week, a studio sure. called Ocean Way, I think it was. Okay. Forgive me if that's wrong. Uh, and then we did the overdubbing at the producer's house. The producer's a guy called Tom Rothrock, who'd done uh, Elliot Smith and, and uh, Beck pre previously, okay. amongst other things. So we did a lot of stuff at his house, overdubbing at his house. It, it was my, my favourite month of my, what I loosely term career. I absolutely yeah. loved it. Yeah. I remember you saying, and it, but it must have been, God, it just must have been great. You know what I mean? You're with an artist who's, whose trajectory is going upwards quickly you're in you're recording essentially the follow-up album in la with a bunch of your mates what more do you want you know what i mean well yeah nothing it, it that was i'll tell you what more you want and you got it as well a wicked bass line for what would be the single <laughs> which every time i hear if i'm going around tesco or something if i'm sitting in a pub that song comes up it comes on i'm like there he is there he well, is thank and then, yeah, I, no. I've just got to explain here that the, the song in question is 1973 by James yeah. Blunt, which has the, I always said to you, it's very much like the, like one of these nights because it's sort of, you know, and it's yeah. just a brilliant baseline. And that's yours, well, man. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have had the chance, chance to do that. And it's yeah. interesting that you say it's like one of these nights because, um, sorry, if I can tell you another long story. Please, please, please. <laughs> it's brilliant because I, uh, I, all these things are coming back to me because you're asking me these okay. questions and I, I'm quite enjoying the memories. Uh, we, we rehearsed that song for a long, like for a day, putting it together. He had the song, 
but he, he wasn't sure if it was going to be like an acoustic guitar thing or he was going to sit at the piano and play it. And we tried it loads of different ways. We did a kind of folky thing, um, more of a kind of cold play rock thing. He, he, he didn't seem to be quite sure how he wanted it to go, but he knew how the song was going to be, just how it was going to be dressed up. And we ended up, I don't remember how, playing it a bit like Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Okay. Which kind of was where it ended up. It ended up being almost like a disco thing, which was quite good because it was about Pasha, the nightclub where he lives in Ibiza. There's a, there's a plaque. I think it opened in 1973. Okay. So that's, it's kind of all bound up in that imagery, the, sure. the lyric. So it ended up being this kind of 70s West Coast, but, but a bit disco, a bit like one of these nights. Yeah. So, so that was in my head. When we got to that point, that thing was in my head. And he, he said... I think it needs a sort of signature baseline. And I thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> Pressure, pressure's on, you know. And um, but because one of these nights was in my head, I I thought, well, I can't I can't play anything like that because it will just be too much like one of these nights sure. if I do if I do that. So I spent the next whatever it was, half an hour trying different things, trying not to play anything like one of these nights. Eventually, right. and and he know. Although he's not necessarily specific what he wants, he doesn't know what he wants. So he's constantly going, no, not that one, no. I mean, maybe a bit more like that. So he knows he knows where he wants to end up. Yes. But he isn't necessarily sure how to get there. And um, so, I, like I say, I'm trying to avoid getting too close to that thing. Eventually, I get a bit frustrated. And I think at one point I actually played, doom, 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 right. doom, like the one of these nights thing. Yeah. At which point the drummer laughs and he goes, that's it. <laughs> and I have to go, well, no. <laughs> we can't do that because that's something else. There's a slight goes, copyright issue on that one. Yeah, exactly. And and it, and he said, no, well, yeah, but that kind of thing along those sort of lines. So right. now I'm trying to straddle being like that, but not being too much like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 of course. Touch, touch wood and hopefully. Oh, uh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's definitely its own thing. And I think it's just because, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Eagles fan and I'm obviously very familiar with that. And it's just, yeah, because you're sliding up and, but it's, you know, it's, it's an amazing song. And one of those that's uh, got a very distinct baseline to it. And the fact that it's you and you did it and you came up with it, man, you know, that's something to be proud of. No, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. And, you know, we, we worked hard between us all, by like a sort of committee deciding what it was going to be. Yeah. Um, but I just kept coming up with ideas until one of them stuck, really. That's, yeah. that's all I could think of to do. Uh, yeah. You know, you always hope that you're going to play your first idea and the artist is going to go, that's it. It's exactly that's what it. I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, genuinely, honestly, that day, that's not what happened. I must have gone through a hundred different things. I bet. I bet. Before eventually went, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Give us yeah. some of the highlights of your time with James Blunt. I mean, obviously you said about already recording that album, uh, doing Glastonbury, briefly some of the other uh, amazing times you had with him. Um. Yeah, Glastonbury, that and that album, as I say, was a pro probably my favourite thing. We we plays at Elton John's Oscars party every year. He does a post Oscars party for his AIDS Foundation. It's like a charity thing. Yeah. Um, and we we played with him. We played Tiny Dancer with Elton uh, there, which was like a pinch myself. Wow. Moment, you know, I, that's amazing. No, I loved it. That was a, that was <clears throat> so that was a, that was a big thing. But, but do you know what? Mostly, it's the places we went that I remember yeah. that, that really stick in my head. Just saw some incredible places, and then, and I can't always remember where we were exactly or, or what place we were playing. But just moments when things were really working, 
you know, when, when you when you felt like you could just sort of lean back into it, this, you know, the music's playing itself. Yeah, playing itself, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when you get those moments, they, you, you, you don't forget them and where you are and, and what it is that you're doing becomes almost irrelevant. Yeah. But I, I still remember those those moments. They, they feel like the most important things, really. How long was it that I, I know you sort of, you still do go back every now and then and do gigs with him. Um, but how long was that initial term that you, that, how many years was it that you were with him for? So about three and a half or four, about 2004 to about 2008. Okay. Um, so 2008, like you, obviously you, you had a family by then and uh, you wanted to spend a little less time on the road, etc. What else were you doing though? Because you worked with Natalie and Brulia as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, that, I think that came about through Carl again as well, the drummer. Okay. He, he got that gig. I went in and did that. And then he did, he did that gig for a while. And then he left. He was doing lots of other things. Big, busy guy, you know, really good. Um, and yeah, he went off to do other things. And so we got another drummer in called Jerry Brown and the, the band kind of changed there. Now she made another album. It was kind of a different sound. Okay. Um, and so we, we brought in another guitar. So we had two guitar players. In fact, Tom Longworth was one of the guitar players who you've had right. on this. Yeah. You? Yeah. He said about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> when, when Carl left that band, I, I became the MD of it because Carl, sure. Carl had been in charge of it. And then when he left, I sort of took charge of it. So that was a new thing for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we ended up just, she didn't do an awful lot of kind of proper touring, but just lots of one-off gigs, really festivals and things. Yeah. But it was really good, good experience and, and good right. fun. There's, there's some great tunes in her. Catalog. Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Give us an idea of other artists that you've worked with or, or recorded with over the years as well. Um, Ben's brother. Do you, I don't know if you remember them. There's a band called Ben's brother who, who, again, in that sort of noughties period, had, had a couple of radio hits, uh, did a couple of albums with them and, and a little bit of touring, but just sort of around this country. Sure. Uh, basically, during the Blunt stuff, we got a little bit of a reputation in a good sense uh, for being quite a half-decent band, you know, backing band. And so two producers, both of whom worked with James, a guy called Sasha Scarbeck, who co-wrote You're Beautiful with him, and another guy called Steve Robson, who, who's written uh, some sort of country hits and, and lots of lots of pop records that you would know and had produced some James stuff as well. They they hit a bit of... Oh, and another guy called Martin Terefi, uh a Swedish guy, another producer and songwriter. They all had their own studios and they were all writing lots of songs for, for artists like Katie Tunstall, that sort of period of time, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, Richard Fleishman was another one I remember coming through there. Ben's brother were another band that came through that. Um, and... They had a bit of a purple patch around that time. They were writing for loads of different people and producing loads of different people. And consequently, they had to churn out a lot of songs and a lot of even demos, not even finished things. Right. And in order, to, in order to do that quickly enough, rather than just play everything themselves, which they were capable of doing, they got a kind of almost like a house band in for a while to, to just be able to get this stuff out there, pitching for songs constantly. Right. And we, we became that for those, those people for a while. So, so uh, you know... I, I, I take that in one direction. I'm on a couple of their things, but they came out of things that they were, they were just those guys writing songs mm. that they were pitching that ended up being done by those artists and that ended up using what I'd done, even though at the time I did it, I didn't know that was who it was for. And when you recorded it, did you, 
was it on the on the proviso that it might be used in something or were you more of thinking it was more of just just basic demos that wouldn't it wouldn't go anywhere well the the the, the deal was that they would pay us to come in pay us per track yeah they pay us what they would call a demo rate so it, it wasn't you know a lot of money it wasn't like you know proper recording session money sure but then if it got used they would then top that up to to what they would pay someone if they would knew if they'd known they were playing on a record right so yeah it was quite a nice little thing for a while so you end up playing on stuff by take that and one direction but you wouldn't i guess you wouldn't have known until the album came out exactly that or uh, yeah. you know a, a bit before because the producers would get in touch and say that, that that one's being used here's a, here's a um, check yeah, I mean that didn't happen to me that often. A, a few times, you know, but Carl, uh, it happened. That kind of thing happened to him a lot more because obviously sure. the drums are so integral to these yeah. things. They they're not going to get rid of those. Yeah. Um, but depending on how things change, you know, the bass might stay or it might not. But, but yeah, it happened a few times, and it, and that was really nice when it did. Yeah, um, amazing. We were really lucky that because they those producers and writers were so busy, they needed people to kind of help them make the demos to sure. uh, do it quickly enough. So yeah, that was good. Incredible. That worked well for a while. Wow. Um, now, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was, but the first day I met you, you were coming in to try out as the new bass player in, uh, Mamma Mia, the West End show, yeah. Mamma Mia in London. And I just happened to be in for, I don't know, I was either in for, for Keith or Terry and, uh, I was there for your, for your first one. And, uh, just tell me about what you remember around that time, uh, because obviously since then for, I don't know, you're going to tell me how many years you've been the mainstay bass chair holder in Mamma Mia. Uh, how long has it been? December 2015, I started. So uh, oh we're God, hur really? hurtling towards six years, aren't we? Yeah. That's crazy. That's yeah. unbelievable, honestly. But my first tryout was October 2015. That's when we met the Is first time. Is that when time. we first met? Bloody but then I, I started proper in the December. In the December, yeah. And I remember distinctly you were in for Keith because Terry was there as well. My first. Ah, uh, was he? Okay, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Oh yeah, he was because we all went out. We That's all right, of us yeah. went out, didn't we? That's right. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. But they are great tunes to play, aren't they? And it's a bloody great show. And and like I said, when Simon was on it, because Simon's obviously a depth on it as well as I am. And you know, it's it, terrifying for you, for the first time with any of those things when you're going for the first time. I don't know how it was for you knowing that obviously there was a, a gig. Uh, off the back of it as well had you got it but they are great songs to play and it's a great show never really gets old does it you know no it, it, they are great songs like anything that you do repetitively yeah um, it, it can start to drive you mad after a while but, yeah. it's, but it doesn't drive i don't think it drives you mad in a musical sense because they are great songs it's just the repetition yeah you could you could be playing the greatest music in the world, you know, of course, and yeah. some would argue that we are playing it, playing ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you do, if you just have to do it the same every day, you know, sometimes twice a day, eventually it does drive, drive you a bit crazy, but you have to find ways to keep it interesting and, and try and be exactly. musical about it. You know, we go to nice places when I'm in, don't we, you know, and, uh... exactly. Musically you mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we go nice to the best places place. musically, obviously. But you, but you were saying about what what it's like the first time you do something, you, first time you do one of those shows. Yeah, and and for anyone watching who who's never done that, it is a bit of a baptism of fire because you you can learn the show as well as you as well as you might as well as you can. You know, you know yeah. the show inside out. You learnt it at home, heard the tapes, read the parts. But when you go in and you're on a headphone system and it's all very clinical and everyone can hear everything and you can hear everything and it's dark 
and there's a guy waving his arms around who you haven't seen enough until this point. Yes. It is quite terrifying. I don't care how many times you do it. It is quite terrifying. No, it is. And it, it, I always used to think it was perhaps just me, but I know everyone's the same. And again, when Simon was on here, and who else did I have on here? Uh, someone else. And we were talking about Depp and how, and, you know, because it's exactly what you just said. It's not like no matter how many shows I've done or however many I've depped on, when you're in that one for the first time, you know, and you've got your in-ears on and, you know, they're, and they're just about to cue it up and you're looking at the MD. And I remember vividly my first one in Mamma Mia, I was in for Terry and I'm sat there and, you know, you've got a thousand people there and you've got the whole, you know, and this show, which has been going for years and years and years. And you're there and you're ready to think, oh God, just, just hold it back. Just hold it back. And then I remember just looking at Marcus, who is the MD, who's a, a brilliant MD and, he just looked over at me and I just remember seeing him do something to his mixer and sort of put one of the faders up. And I thought, and I just took that as, yeah, I bet he's putting me up so he can hear, just so he can hear me. And there's, there's that added pressure of, you know, the, the MD's listening out and he's used to hearing it a certain way. It is, man, but it's also great fun. And I think it makes you a, a much uh, more rounded musician for all of those things that you do, you know, for all yeah. the pressures that you put yourself under. Well, I, I think those those times it, it, when you're under those pressures, that that's when you really get to sort of use your musical instincts, isn't it? And and yeah. try to make it work in however you can. Yeah. And and, it, and it's almost a shame when when you've been in there for a couple of weeks, you're not needing to do that anymore. You know, you've settled right into it, and then there's yeah. a sort of sweet sweet spot where you know it really well, and you're just enjoying playing it. Yeah, of course. And then obviously the repetition kicks in. You know, after that. Yeah, and I I think it also you know when you when you sat around with a with a band of the caliber of particularly that show you know there's some unbelievably talented musicians in in that band and and great guys as well and you just want to sort of do it a do it a, a, a service really the whole thing don't you yeah exactly that so let's move on to even though obviously you've been in the show for a number of years now it hasn't stopped you from going back and doing other gigs um quite a few years ago i was uh in florida with uh mel and the kids and you happened to be there at the same time because you were just joining uh james blunt's tour out there which you were filling in for uh your uh, successor who gets you back like i say from time to time and you go and, and do and you went on to do uh, a north american tour i met up with you that night although you were you'd literally just flown in as well and you were just watching though we got yeah. to watch the show with james blunt and um he was he was supporting Ed Sheeran, which was and yeah. so it was an unbelievable gig, you know, seeing the whole thing. Obviously, seeing you out there, so you went on to do a, that whole North American tour, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, how was it? Was it great? Obviously, it peaked yeah. after you know peaked seeing me, and it was all downhill. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it's difficult to live up to that first night, but um, <laughs> no, it, it was great actually, and and in some respects, the easiest tour I've ever done in that we were supporting. So we were off stage by upper stage, yeah. quarter to nine, something like that. Um, and we only did 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Yeah. So yeah, in that respect, it was, it was really easy. And and because it wasn't James's tour, the sound checks were quite curtailed. You know, there was no kind of rehearsing new stuff in the sound check or anything. It all had to be done quite quickly because obviously it was Ed's gig. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in that respect, it was really easy and just 
also because it was multiple nights because obviously Ed Sheeran sells a lot of tickets he was doing multiple yes. nights in these arenas so we'd get to a place and it wouldn't just be due to get back on the bus and drive to the next one you'd be in a hotel for a couple of nights I mean it must have been nice as well because it wasn't like you were any old support band because they have a great relationship between them and didn't Ed Sheeran back in the early days didn't it wasn't Ed Sheeran James Blunt support act that probably did happen at some point I don't think I was there when, okay. it, when it did but um they were on, they were on the same management then right. so then they knew each other obviously ed came came through a bit after james did but so james was aware of him right yeah. from when he first started to break through um so yeah same same management and so they, they knew each other really well i want to move on to uh, a story that uh actually it was something i spoke to tom longworth about when he came on here that you and i were stood outside the nail probably having a pint and we were talking about flight cases me and you yeah, right. And I don't know why we were talking about flight cases, but you were saying, oh, yeah, I just got some new flight cases. And I was like, all right, yeah. But you were, you know, being how you are, you were quite quite reserved about it. I was like, what are you got them for? You know, what are you up to? And I'm questioning you. are like, oh, I'm doing some gigs abroad. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, who are you doing them with? And you're like, oh, I'm doing it with Robbie Williams. I was like, fair play. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but, that, you know, and that was that. And then, you know, and then it was during the World Cup when I turned it on and uh, there you were on the World Cup open ceremony. I spoke to Tom at, at length about how that all came about and because he had this he had this extra thing where he had to run around the field and it was a brilliant sport. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, how was it from your perspective doing that? Well, I, I, I'm not a regular member of that band no, at of course, all. I'm, of course. I'm, I'm just a depth. Yes. Jerry Meehan is the, is the bass player and he's, you know, a very good one. He is too. Um, but he does other things as well. And, and I think he was a, a touring with Brian Ferry and so couldn't do the opening of the World Cup and, and a few other gigs that were around the same time. Sure. All all, all uh, private gigs, corporate gigs. You know? Yeah. But he couldn't do them. So they needed a replacement. So so in, in I went, which is great. And, and I, I had done a couple of things with them before years ago. So I sort of knew what was going on and I knew the, knew the, the crew and the band and everything. Um. But yeah, Jerry just said, I, I, there's some dates, Robbie dates, I can't do these are the dates, can you do them? And I said, well, presuming I can get out of the show, which Touchwood is generally okay, then yeah, I can do them. But at that point, I didn't know what they were. Right. And, and so I said, oh, what are, because they were a bit spaced apart, it wasn't like a tour. I said, what are they? He said, oh, they're just corporates. Yeah. Like, okay, great. You know, um, so fine. That was all I knew at that point. And then there was a bit of, a bit of kerfuffle. I started to, I started to realise there was a bit more to it because, I started to hear, oh, Jerry really wants to do whatever that date was, the 18th of June or something. Jerry really wants to do that one. So it might, we might not need you for that. We might be flying him in and out. Like, Fine, you know, whatever. just tell me what you did before. Sure. But I started to realise that there was something about this date that was different to the others. Right. Um, and so after, after ask, they'd been sworn to secrecy because no one's supposed to know who's going to be opening sure. the thing. You know? So that's why they were being cagey about it. But eventually someone said, all right, it's the opening of the World Cup. Uh, you know the first match in in Moscow. So of course I'm, wow, because <laughs> I you know I love football as well. So the whole thing was just suddenly turned into a brilliant, brilliant thing. Yeah. Um, but as you can imagine, the opening of the World Cup in Moscow it wasn't necessarily straightforward. There's no. I'm sure Tom told you all about it, and when when he was on. Yeah, he I, he was sort of yeah. I, because I was saying to him about um because I I was sure you told me afterwards. That didn't you have to have a run through like a, a like a re rehearsal of mainly for camera placements and stuff so you wouldn't be picked yeah. up when you're moving on and off the pitch and mm. yeah just a, a whole bizarre bizarre it, thing it was and it, and it was 
it was complete chaos. You know, clearly they had bigger things to worry about at the sure. World Cup than a 20-minute performance by a pop yeah. star in the middle of the pitch. But yeah. also it was a worldwide television event. So they, it, it was kind of, in one sense, it was a really big deal. And in another sense, it was the least important thing that anyone sure. was worried about. So yeah. it was an odd one. So we did have this rehearsal and you kind of felt like they were squeezing it into this tiny period of time that they could allow it to happen. And it became clear that not all of the gear was there. So we ended up doing the run through with, without any of the gear or without most of the gear on the pitch. And right. it was like, well, is there going to be any gear? When's it coming? You know, the things tomorrow, because it was all rented in. Yeah. So it just felt kind of chaotic and a, and a bit of a worry. But in the end, everything was there and it was all fine. And good, good, good fun. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, is there anything we haven't covered that you want to talk about? I feel like I've talked a lot. So, so I, I, I doubt it. I'm sorry if I've waffled <laughs> on too much, but I've genuinely enjoyed it. Um, no, not really. Uh, I mean, certainly in terms of things I've done, uh, we've pretty much covered it all, I think. Um, uh, yeah, since I've been in the show, there's uh, been doing less kind of one-offs and things. It's been, obviously you start to just look after your show and, 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 and you don't get tempted yeah. out to do, to do other things quite, quite so much. Um, but still lucky. There's still some things happening. Yeah. 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 You're, I mean, we were just talking before we came on about some, you know, other exciting gigs that you've got coming up and I'm sure they'll be fantastic. And I think it's nice as well. You sort of uh, going back to Phil Lachlan, you know, the fact that he gave you your first uh, dep in the West end and now you have him in, as one of your depths in the show and he's a great guy and yeah it's funny how things um pan out isn't it yeah it is um, um and it, yeah it's a real community isn't it the whole yeah, the whole mus musician thing and especially in the west end yeah because everyone's kind of in the same couple of square miles and mm. frequenting the same pubs and all that of stuff. course yeah 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 this is it man it's uh it's like the old days when if you needed a band you just went to the pub nearest the theater and saw who was in there it's good but that's it. I mean, that's what I've always sort of chuckled about because it is, it's like an old school network, isn't it, down there? You know, there's yeah. no, um, you know, social media could might as well not bother existing for, for the guys down there because no <laughs> one, that's not how any of them get work. You know, it's it's the fact that it's just all networking, you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're, now they're playing the whole time. And long may that continue. I really, yeah. hope, it, really hope it does. But I can't help thinking at some point the theatre's due a, a, a real modernisation in the way they go about things. You know, we've been... Maybe. Yeah. The, the way things have worked, certainly music-wise in the West End, has been the same for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, and it's come under threat from various sort of technological advances. Sure. And, you know, fingers crossed it continues like it is now for a, for a really long time. Yeah, I hope uh, so. Certainly the pandemic has, has uh, put a microscope on that a little bit and people have had to rethink how it, how it all works. But mm. touch wood, we'll still be there for a while yet. Exactly. Malcolm Moore, thank you very much, mate. No, thank you. I've had a blast. It's been really nice.